0: Uh, Welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Vincent Green. He's your host, Noel John Toohey. We got Cara Mack in the back, and this is MDK Presents Mark Scheffler. Mark, can you please tell the folks who you are and what you do?
1: Oh, let me see. Uh, My name is Mark Scheffler. I'm 72 years old, and uh, uh, I work for my wife. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm I'm a a writer and a producer and uh, started out as an actor one of the lead roles in Wes Craven's first film, Last House on the Left. And I guess that's why I'm here.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, we're going to touch upon Last House on the Left, but I think that you've, you've had a very storied career, and I'd love to kind of maybe get the full scope of it. Sure. like sure. Last House on the Left kind of, you know, it's this uh, entryway. underground following.
0: And... Yeah, it's kind of the entryway for us too, because we have a horror podcast and we love horror. And like it, it kinda gives us a nice commonality, this kind of start our conversation because we're big horror buffs and you started in a legendary horror movie with one of the most legendary horror creators that's ever existed in and West I mean, Craven, I mean, you know. Film,
3: which is
0: known, yeah, exactly, known like film. you know, so it's a beautiful entryway for us, but we'd love to hear about your as Noah said, your storied career. Like but what was it what was it like working with West Craven, even in the infancy of his career? Was it like could you see that he well, had this kind of gift about him or whatever?
1: I, I I have to, to modify what you said. I didn't work with Wes in the infancy of his career. I worked with Wes at the birth of his
2: career. <laughs> oh, oh, get straight, people. I
1: wasn't, I wasn't in preschool with him. I, I was in the, in the delivery room.
3: <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like that. Yeah, that
1: that's for sure. So, well, well, but please, tell us a little bit about it. First of all... Um, <coughs> This was one of the nicest guys I've ever known. Uh, he, he he was nice uh, when I met him uh, back in the day, and I saw him about uh, a year before he passed away. So I, I just give you that kind of beginning and end to it. Uh, it, it was great, man. I was 20 years old uh, as an actor in New York, going around doing auditions and doing stand up, and you know just just doing anything I could to to push myself forward. And one day I walked in to my manager's office and I I was, there's an overriding theme to, to my life and my career. And is that, that uh, I've I've been blessed with an extraordinary amount of, of situational luck. And that is (laughs) that, that way, you know, whenever shit needed to happen the right way, more often than not, you know, uh, the, like, like in Woody Allen's match play, the the ball fell on the right side of the court. So, so um. You know, I walked in and I I said my manager I had the same manager as Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck at the time. <laughs> oh uh, Lloyd Greenfelder. Yes, see that's what I mean. I just somehow met those guys and they liked me and they said so. They uh, the Dick Towers was was my rep and he. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> And, and, and uh, it's called, kind of redundant actually. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: um, I was, he in, oh, <laughs> was he a high raise? Was <laughs> he a high raise?
1: He was. He was a very tall man. redundancy. Um, so, so I walked into his office one day and he said, "Hey man, I got a movie audition for you." He handed me a slip of paper that had an address on it, and he said, "Go to this address." ask for two guys, Wes and Sean, read a scene and we'll see what happens. So I went down and I to the office uh, that that he said and I met a tall, stringy, blonde-haired, skinny guy named Wes and a shorter mustache fellow named uh, uh, Sean. Both of them were like late 20s, early 30s at the time. I was 20, so so, uh, uh, I read a scene and uh, on my way back to Dick's office, got there and by the time I had gotten back, they had called and said that's the guy we want and you know wes was west craven and sean was sean cunningham
0: <laughs> oh wow <laughs> they they went to college together or they lived together for a long time didn't they sean cunningham and west craven
1: i think they were good they, they were they interacted to me as as, as if they were good friends that they, yeah. they, they didn't just meet each other they were they were pals Does it uh, seem a bit surreal now when you
3: think of <laughs> what west craven actually is in a horror world
0: and Sean uh,
1: Cunningham, yeah. the great afraid
0: Friday the Thirteenth, like. And
3: well, like you you met them in this kind of like, oh, these guys seem nice,
0: but it's Sean and nice Wes,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? like, yeah. It's so weird. So so um, when I saw, I, I told, I mentioned that I saw Wes about a year before he passed. We were uh, uh, both invited to a, an art exhibition opening at a gallery in Burbank, California. You know, which is right by Los Angeles. And uh, some artist had done a multimedia rendering of certain scenes from Wes's movies. And the guy who owned the gallery knew somebody who knew me and he knew somebody who knew Wes. So they, they invited us both. So I hadn't seen Wes in, I don't know, a lot, lot of time, you know, years. And uh, uh, I got there first, my wife and I got there first. And then I saw Wes walk in uh, and it was kind of like a long, narrow gallery. So there was, there was this long hallway between the door and where we were. And he, he sees me and I see him and we just kind of like shake our heads and smile and we'll walk to each other. And he extends his hand and I extend my hand. And the moment we shook hands, I look at him and I say, so what have you been up to? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> he
1: just said you're still crazy man you're still crazy <laughs> yeah you know you don't cure what i have uh, <laughs> yeah, but you don't
0: want to cure it either yeah exactly
1: and exploit it right? <laughs> so, so um we had a wonderful talk we spoke privately for about uh 20 minutes half hour or so and just kind of caught up uh you know with headlines on our lives and you know that that was it he, he was a terrific guy and a great storyteller and and um had a clear vision of of uh everything that he wanted even back in the day even even on his, on last house that was that we all worked and we all contributed to it but the 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 master view was uh wes's vision it, mm. it, it was what he wanted
3: yeah he did um was he the same kind of grounded man at, a year before he passed? All his successes, Scream, Nightmare on the Street, etc. behind him. Was he still
1: the same grounded guy that you met in the early 70s? Same guy. Same. That's, that's he, really nice he to just, hear. He just looked older, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <well, well, laughs> no well,
3: yeah. way around that, unfortunately. No way around
1: that, But I could, I, I sense from his demeanor, from the conversation we had, from, you know, his, his uh, uh, friendliness toward me, uh, that he was, uh, uh, without a doubt, the same guy.
3: That's awesome to hear. Yeah. Why did you? Why was this your one uh, feature film? Why was it that you decided that the spotlight wasn't for you, and you ended up? I, I read it so much behind the camera, but why was this the one, the one and done for you?
1: Well, it, it, it wasn't that it was one and done. It was it was that it was one and and and, and opened my eyes uh, uh, and planted seeds in me that that grew into a desire. That I wanted to to not just be part of a story, I wanted to tell the story, which is why I uh, uh, took a turn into, you know, uh, well, sort of why I became a writer. It's not the whole reason, but uh, it's the the mature explanation of why I became a writer. There's an immature reason, but. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no. Do
1: you, do you think that's why a lot of actors,
0: um, as they kind of mature in their career, either become writers or become directors? Because instead of just being a part of the story, they want to kind of get into the nitty gritty of creating the story itself or molding the story.
1: Okay, for actors, I think uh, uh, some of them reach a conclusion that, like I did, that you would rather tell the story than be part of the story. For yeah. directors. Uh, and for writers who become directors, it's a mm. different reason, which I, I'll tell you guys in a little little kind of uh, parable that goes around Hollywood
2: <laughs>
1: about a writer who uh, uh, had been around for years and years and years and had sort of survived, not survived, had good years, had bad years. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he sells a, a, a script for a lot of money, you know, something he had in his drawer, sells it for a lot of money and his entire lifestyle changes. So he's out one, the night celebrating the, the, the recent success, meets a woman in a club, gorgeous actress, model type, just, you know, he tells her part of the story and she goes, wow, that's amazing. You know, one thing leads to another, she invites him back to her place. They get there. It's this beautiful condo overlooking Sunset Boulevard, the lights of L.A. It's, it's one of these things that it's that, completely representative of a success, like something that you could see. I'm, I'm at the top of the mountain. Right. And looking down, she says to him, why don't you go to my little bar over there and mix us a couple of drinks? And I'm going to go into my bedroom and slip into something more comfortable. You know, <laughs> wow. Wow. This writer is like, wow. He goes he makes the drinks and he talks starts walking towards her hallway where her bedroom was she comes out and as they're walking toward each other a director steps out of the bathroom <laughs> looks, at the, looks at the writer and says that's okay i'll take it from here
2: <laughs> hey, that's,
1: that's, that's why writers become directors <laughs> uh, you know what that-
3: uh, has just really simplified something <laughs> that I will carry with me for the rest of the day. <laughs> just, just like it was really interesting getting this close to the finish line, but I sure would like to get to that finish line. Yeah.
1: By yeah. the way I wrote that story. So oh, just... did you did yeah. oh.
3: <laughs> Okay, a piece of shame to self promotion. That's uh, what we I, were all and the, here.
0: Uh, Well yeah. right before it, you I, were finished it did a director come in and just take it over yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah that,
1: that, it's really it's it's really like um you know it's it's a heartbreaking thing when you're the writer you know i i've i've been on the set of lots of stuff that i've written and uh, on the set rather of lots of stuff that i've written and i see directors at times not everyone but but especially in sitcoms because mostly in 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 sitcoms uh, directors are, are traffic directors they're not really you know they they take their marching orders from the executive producer because that's that medium that's not like film so so um you know i i i as a, as a comedy person who hears comedy lyrically and as music, uh, I, I've often watched performances go by where direction, good direction would have, or informed direction would have gotten more laughs out of a scene or more laughs out of a joke. So, you know, I, I, I have a series that, uh, that I'm working on and uh, I'm partners with a, a fellow named Gary Hart, who was uh, president of Paramount uh, Network Television for over a dozen years and we're we're best friends for a long long time so we have a series that we're uh uh, trying to get get moving and we're casting right now uh and i'm gonna you know i'll be the executive producer on that and any director i hire will you know as as pro forma take take his or her orders from me but in film it's the director who's the boss and the writer is like uh you know somewhere below the craft service guy (laughs)
3: yeah. <laughs> you make me kind of put in my head like uh charlie and the chocolate factory the shining like ronald mm-hmm. wanted his name off of charlie and the chocolate factory he absolutely yeah. despised the, the shining you know famous falling out between kubrick and king uh, and while i've never like wrote something and had it adapted to film I, I obviously don't understand what that's like but obviously the picture that's in your head you wrote it so the picture that's in your head is by default right I feel. as if this well, is the world I been
1: and it's just not. No, the, I agree with you, but in in the, in, the, in narrow scope, I disagree experientially, and that that's because uh, uh, often uh, uh, writers are compartmentalized into that written word thing, and directors uh, are compartmentalized into the visual of it, right? Into what are the, what are the pictures. So there are there there have also been times, lots of them, where a director will take the written word and three-dimensionalize it and expand it and it becomes something better than what was on the page. So you know, every every incident is kind of different. In theory, you're right, you know, what, what you said, but yeah as a writer in a in a in a medium like film or television. Uh, you have to understand that once you write it, you give it up to somebody else who's also an artist. And yeah. A, that person needs to bring to the table what they were hired to bring. And, you know, and sometimes it's it's good and sometimes it isn't. And sometimes the direct director and the writer have conflicts. But, you know, ultimately it's a collaborative medium and everybody at the end of the day wants the, the, the most entertaining product, product. Uh, uh, that can be produced so you know this
3: makes me think of a question that brings it back to us: when that film came out and it had obviously controversy around it because there were scenes of sexual violence there was kidnapped torture there was murder you know all of that kind of stuff and it was 1972 there was obviously the, the shock factor that we have now with hostels and saws but it was it was quite big news at the time the way you're talking about responsibility as an actor in that film did you feel that heat at all compared to less West? Or 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 somebody higher up in the executive chain? Did
1: you? Were you just like, "Hey, dude, I'm just a guy in a film. I don't want to tell you." So, so uh, we shot the movie. I think we had a 20-day schedule, which is a four or five-day week, right? Uh, a okay. four or five-week. Like so, working days, five. Yeah. Five working days, right? So, for it took me two weeks to get over the thrill of the fact that I was in a movie. That was <laughs> <laughs> that I was actually working in a film. No, I didn't. I. I I didn't know a lot then so I I had to to uh, uh, I didn't have enough experience to have an opinion and I knew that Uh, I I think I I just you know gave it up to the to the greater good and said I'm going to listen to what people who know more about this tell me to do because I I considered myself lucky to have the job and uh, didn't want to be someone who uh, was annoying and because I kind of Worked my myself that way. In that month of, of production, I ended up learning the fundamentals of everything I know today about filmmaking. I mean, the the, the primitive version of everything I know uh, was exhibited during those twenty days.
3: That's incredible to think about because even though you've died so heavily into things like comedy, and mediums like that, obviously been in something again a controversial early, early '70s exploitation horror film. Um, it, it made you so interested in the creative process and then you took your own flavor and kind of worked outwards with it um, yeah it's it's, it's it's fascinating to think about but being on that set did you feel like you were a part of something that was going to be a cult classic or again were you just just a kid but wet behind the ears?
1: um uh first part what you just said yes while we were in production and then david heston fred lincoln and i went to a, a screening of an answer print that's the final print uh, at, at a, uh, a post-house, post-production house uh, in New York, and it was a cast and crew screening. So David, Freddie, and I walked out of, uh, of the screening room and looked at each other and said, nobody is ever going to fucking come to see this. <laughs> this, this film is going to come and go. But you see, the, the weird thing is, last house, again, the, 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 it's, it's the luck that I've had in my career. Last House was originally uh, slated uh, to be produced to become a uh, uh, second of a double feature for a, a company that had called Hallmark Releasing that had a chain of drive-in theaters in the uh, New England area. Grindhouse was a no. It was it was they they owned the theaters. It wasn't Grindhouse, but it was a, a kind of a Grindhouse feel, park, right? So they they have these drive-in theaters, and uh, they wanted a scary slasher double feature for Friday Saturday date night, you know. So yeah, so that and and that's what it was made. So when it was released, initially, it was released in you know in a small area, and they didn't have a whole lot of money to make back. So they put it on in, in their drive-ins, and it was doing okay business for what it was, and it was creating all the controversy that you just talked about. And then uh, a couple of months later in in January, uh, the following year, Roger Ebert wrote a three and a half out of four star review of Last House in the Chicago Sun-Times. Oh, wow. And, yes, and literally overnight, everything changed. Like from from what I remember, uh, they had they had made like twenty or thirty prints of the film and sent them <laughs> to the Hallmark, and then after Roger Ebert's review, they had like an order for twelve hundred prints of the film to go nation. Yeah, and then all over New York City, there were uh, uh, posters of, the, of, uh, of Last House, and life changed. It just because of Roger Ebert. It just it just. Do you
0: do you think it's a case of like there's no genre that lends itself better to controversy than horror? Like, like, uh, like of all the genres, like but, uh, nobody say, like, sometimes bad press is good press, like for There's horror. Press yeah. Press yeah. Press but, press. you know, well, like, they,
1: yes, 100 percent true. Yeah. Because and, and what what Sean did to his credit, he's, instead of shying away from the bad press, they leaned into it and, yeah. and 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 went with it and used that as the energy to propel the marketing, uh, which was brilliant. You know, they they. You know, exploited it. They squeezed every drop out of it that could be, and still, which is you know, unbelievably. Like I go to horror film conventions pre pre pandemic. I was doing you know four or five of them a year, and I'd go there and I'd sit and sign autographs and memorabilia for people of all ages, every everywhere from my age who remembers it first run to uh, uh, teenagers who now who have seen it at the behest of their parents uh, as a <laughs> cautionary tale to, yeah. to show them what happens if you go out into the world and make wrong decisions
3: that's the thing the characters that you played were bad guys not like but not 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 nuanced, not, not lex Luthor, not not even michael myers or, or jason who are like almost paranormal you were just right. bad guys you your yeah. character junior was a little bit more nuanced in their Controlled and, and you know, I, kind of way, but they the, the car- yeah. But the characters around you were psychopath rapists, murderers. They were so it was just again, all around
0: good guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a cautionary <laughs> tale
3: because these were, if, if this was definitely the big bad wolf that the parents oh, were worried
1: yeah. about being out there, especially
3: for their daughters,
1: absolutely. And it wasn't until I, you know, maybe just a few years ago. Uh, that I watched it again and figured out what I thought the movie was about and the one defining scene. If you guys remember the dinner scene? When okay. After,
3: when, when you're in the house with the parents?
1: Yes, and there's a scene that Wes shot all in blacks. Like there's there's nothing but but black curtains around us. And uh, all, the, all the actors were, were really well lit against a, a nothing but not a dining room. You didn't see any furniture except the dining room. And in that scene, I realized that what, what this whole movie was about was class warfare. It was, it was uh, the people who had things and the people who thought they were entitled to have things and that the, those people would do anything they could. All, you know, All bets were off. And then it was the the other people defending, you know, their their castle. Oh, uh, just made me realise
3: there's a uh, Sophie. What was the name of the uh, the girl in the back in your crew? Uh, Sadie. Sadie, sorry, I know Sophie was wrong, <laughs> uh, but she said this house makes me want to be a lady or something like that. Yeah. I think was a yeah. line which uh-huh. you're just after making me rethink because she just she's just in it and she looks around and she's obviously a psychopath. She's a bad person and stuff, Yes. But I ju- this, I think, I this would be enough for me this this just this luxury you know respectability
1: yeah and then then it sort of made sense you know then then the movie because i've always had you know when i was younger after i made it and even in its even in its first run when it started when it got a lot of notoriety i was just in it for the girls man it was just uh,
2: I'll let you have yeah. that laugh, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: because because um, I was I was 21 when it was released, and uh, uh, after the Roger Ebert thing, and it, when it when the uh, film went went wide, I was asked to go back to Pittsburgh, where I was born and and live, and open the film at uh, a big movie theater downtown, one of those great old kind of ornate. Baroque movie theaters that, coincidentally, my father's cousin was the general manager of the theater, (laughs) Stanley Warner. Yeah, your look is weird. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm going to digress here for a sec. But but my series, the series that I was telling you about is called Those Seven Years. And uh, what it's about is uh, when I was 14, my father and I were in that theater watching Jerry Lewis in The Nutty Professor. (laughs) <laughs> and as the film ended and the credits were rolling, uh, I, I made some comments to my dad about, wow, how, how great it must be to be in the movies and, and what a life Jerry Lewis must have. And my father just looked at, my father was like this very out of the box aluminum siding salesman character. And uh, uh, he looked at me and he said, well, maybe you'll find out one day. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you're funny, you know, you make people laugh. People do that every day in the movies, why not you? And I didn't really have an answer for him. So we made this kind of little little deal, right? Uh, we, we made a deal that I said, okay, dad, whatever you say, one day I'll star in a movie that's going to be on this screen. And and my father said, and when that happens, uh, we'll ride to the premiere in a limousine together. So now cut to seven years later, last house on the left. Opens up <laughs> at the Stanley and my dad and I ride there in a limo together. So that the whole series is, is about what happens in those seven years that that you know the journey of, of that. Actually, a
3: genuinely beautiful story. But I just picture you, the Lindsay, your father saying, "What kind of character do you play?" You are like, "Don't worry about it." <laughs> <laughs> He's a good guy.
1: <laughs> the picture opens up in uh, in uh, Pittsburgh, and quite you know surprisingly to me, there were several girls in my high school graduating class who, was scant three years earlier would not give me the time of day right well now they were willing to give me the time of day and a whole lot more right? <laughs> and, and i remember being with one of them and and in the middle of it i had this thought i said wow what a career choice you yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: so, so what happened was you know all films have a life cycle so you know in hmm. a shelf life so you know it went up and had a peak and dropped down very quickly and so there i was i was back to being I, i'd gone from this high of being you know this semi-celebrity person to just another out-of-work actor so one night i'm uh, i'm uh, at a party and and my my uh uh sex life was just like dead it was just, like, <laughs> from being being flooded to being you know dry as a desert so <laughs> uh, i'm at a party and uh um I watched this guy who didn't look any, wasn't any better looking than I was with this beautiful model. And he's, I lean in close and he saying, well, yeah, I'm fleshing out my concept and I'm uh, uh, looking for my character arcs and, you know, I believe I've got the all my act breaks where I want them. And then what I've got to do is kind of weave in a subplot and an underlying narrative. And this girl is fucking hypnotized, man. It was like, wow, just staring. And they end up leaving together. I see him take her by the hand and they walk out the door. And I had an epiphany. I said, I could do that. I could tell girls I'm a writer. So I did. I went I bought a bunch of books and I learned... You know, I took my I gave myself a quick tutorial on writing words and, you know, the, the jargon of the, the profession. And I it was, you know, I was going around to parties and doing that same thing. So one day I'm, I'm in a, a commercial audition uh, in Manhattan and the director was a fellow named N. Lee Lacey. I don't know if you guys ever heard of him, but do you uh, do you follow American football at all? You know anything about American football? About football. OK, so there's a very famous commercial with a, a, an older NFL championship player by the name of Me Joe Green it's a co-commercial with Me and Joe Green in the and tunnel, it, it, yes yeah okay that's the one so so uh, this uh, guy Lee Lacey who I had become friends with because I'd auditioned for him I'd done a couple of commercials for him he's the guy who directed that commercial and, oh cool and, yeah so uh, I, I'm I'm in his office in the waiting room and I'm doing my thing to a girl and I'm saying my character I <laughs> um, talking to an agent on, on the coast, you know, and I, I had it all. I, by that time I had it like down perfectly. It was, it was, it was a solid hunk of material. So uh, uh, I'm talking to her and then I can feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's Lee. And he said, hey, listen, I want to read that when you're finished. So I said, hey, uh, let, me, let me tell you something. So I took him aside and I said, look, man, I, I, I'm not really writing anything. I'm just doing this to get laid. Said, do it for the girls so he said to me does it work <laughs> yeah nearly all the time he said then you're an idiot and I, I said why because it you know you need to use this for a much better purpose you know <laughs> don't use it for evil use it for good so he said I want you to write something I want you to actually write something so I ended up writing a script, which he did give to his agent in Los Angeles, who sold it to NBC. And that's what moved me to California. So it again, I go back to this quirky luck that I have, that at the right moment in time, uh, when something needed to happen to, to get me uh, uh, forward, it happened. So that's the, that's the real reason of how I became a writer. I you literally had to faked
0: it till you met it. I mean, I know that's the troll. Yeah. You literally <laughs> faked <laughs> it until till you make it, you make
1: it yeah. yeah, I'm still faking it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, so, like, with the ups and downs of your career, because it sounds like it was a very fluctuating time, What was there ever a time where you bottomed out and you just thought, because it's between 1972 and me talking to you right now, it's a lot of years that have gone by. Yeah, sure. Was there was was ever a time where you just bottomed out like You yeah, had, a, had yeah. a taste of success and I know that you said it was a dry period and then you faked it until you made it. I, I, I'm not sure what comes next to be honest, but, but did it ever just bottom out?
1: Well, define bottom out. because well, I suppose that... going back to a, a life less ordinary, going back no. to, to... I've never know. had a real job in my entire life. Uh, <laughs>
0: Once again, nice.
1: Closest (laughs) closest I ever came was from 2010 to 2015. I taught uh, screenwriting and television writing and comedy writing at Loyola Marymount University School of Film and Television. But that's about the closest I've ever come to a real job. There were times when when I wasn't working as much, but I had a lot of residuals coming in from stuff that I had done. So, and then there were times that were, were lean, but I managed to, to get by. Uh, so I, I've been able to pretty much maintain that, that uh, the entertainment industry is the only real occupation I've ever had. I've never lost, I guess because, because I started, the, the, way I, the way I sort of uh, started was when I was 10 years old, uh, um, my father, again, out-of-the-box aluminum siding salesman guy, uh, came to me and said, you're going to be 10 double digits. You're growing up. Uh, I want to give you a special birthday present this year. What do you want for your birthday? So I said, the three stooges. And and he got them for me. He he hired them to perform at at a birthday party he threw for my 10th birthday. And that that picture right over there is a picture of me and the three stooges at my birthday party so so uh that was nice can i just process that for
3: just two <laughs> you just randomly threw in that the three stooges were at yes. like your 10th birthday party your dad <laughs> was a really nice dude <laughs> mike yeah. like just just so, you go, know, your dad was a really, really good dude, man. Oh
1: no, he was amazing. He he was amazing, and and so we're at the birthday party, and it was a, it was in a huge nightclub in Pittsburgh that that uh, where they were doing a two week gig. So uh, we had about sixty people, friends and family, and you know parents who couldn't believe this was happening. So they showed up too, and uh, uh, in the middle of their performance, Mo stops the show, and he says, uh, um. I, uh, we know we're all here to celebrate Mark's 10th birthday. Uh, where's Mark? So I raised my hand and Mo says, hey Mark, come up on stage with us. So I went up on stage and I knew all of their stuff. I knew all of their material because I was a rabbit Three Stooges fan at the time. And, and uh, I started to interact with them. And you got to imagine that I'm on stage, I'm 10 years old. Uh, uh, I've got lights in my eyes. I can't see the audience i'm in front of a microphone and i'm getting laughs and applause and laughs and applause and suddenly mo puts his hand on my head and says i dub you the fourth stooge <laughs> so, huge applause and at that moment in time I, I i i closed my eyes i believe and i felt this warmth this embrace this you know must be what doing heroin for the first time yeah. you know, I, was, I
3: was about to make a joke about you know like that you know to say the first time's free a kind of joke about that yeah. that first time uh, of just because I, I got a chill when you said that I mean that's that like, moment
1: hot. yeah that moment changed my life it changed my life that moment aimed my life Right, it, 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 I think it both. I
3: think it was on a. I think it, bowled, it Did, did they
0: um? Did the jippy on the royalty checks? Did you see any Stooges yeah, money? Did you see any of that Stooge money afterwards? Yeah. No, no They no, the the I, 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 oh. oh.
1: <laughs> I, I was um, that that from that moment forward, uh, everybody, you know, my like my my father passed <laughs> away, but my father's younger brother, who's alive, is like ninety-three years old now, oh, that's and. Awesome. And yeah and he tells me that uh when i was a kid all i wanted to do was watch stand-up comedians on tv and do com- you know he said that's all you ever cared about and and i guess yeah like nobody in my family who you know is surprised that my life ended up where it did they're, well sure of course you know all my friends i'm still friends with a bunch of guys that i grew up with and they none of them are surprised you know? you're such,
3: you actually are even just talking to you clearly you're a very funny guy but I, I i'm surprised because obviously the writing was what really spoke to you but there, it sounds like there was probably a little bit of a performer in you you definitely explored your creative side more than you explored your performer side or, or i i'm i'm i don't know your life i'm sorry i'm speaking out okay. of okay
1: so so when i got to la after i sold that script uh um i had william morris agency as my agent's and one day in a meeting, they said to me, uh, uh, well, what, what else do you want to do besides write? You know, pilot season isn't for a couple of months. We, you know, there's nothing really going on until then. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I did a lot of stand-up back in New York, you know, and I told him my history that I, I had worked for a comedian, a, a, a pretty well-known comedian on the, on the East Coast of the United States, and that I became part of his act. And I did about 150 club dates with him and then ended up with two weeks at the Copacabana. And uh, um, they said, okay. So they called Mitzi Shore at the comedy store, who owned owned the the comedy store, and told her about me. And she said, well, I don't know who he is, so I'm not going to make him a regular, but I'll give him a time on a Monday night. Monday night was potluck night, open mic night. So (laughs) so instead of having to stand in line and, uh, you know, take that chance she she as a favorite of William Morris gave me uh like uh, uh a 9 10 o'clock a pretty good spot so I went on and I, I did really well you know it wasn't wasn't uh uh like brilliant but it was well, confident <laughs> you you,
3: you yeah. because,
1: because to backtrack a bit I started hanging out there a couple of weeks before the time that I had what you know, uh, I knew it was going to be. And I saw comedians, I saw like Tim Thomerson and Steve Bluskneen and Paul Mooney, all at the same, on the same show. I shit my pants because that <laughs> Catskill Mountain shit that I was doing, it wasn't going to fly here. It was just, you know, way, it, made, it would make me look like I'm 90 years old. I didn't want to do that. So I had to write a whole new five minutes, which I did. That was much more current much more california much more you know on on cutting edge stuff and like i said i went on i did it and it was fine so they invited me back on the second night uh i do, had done some rewriting because i recorded my set and i fixed it and tweaked it and it was incrementally better than the first time so they invited me back and then on the third third time i i again i go to this luck thing that all the comedians on before me had done really well so the audience was at a a, a good level right it was it was buzzing mm-hmm. and uh i had a like a 1030 1045 spot which is prime it's prime territory and uh i went on and i killed it i just crushed it like like every joke worked better than than i'd hoped the audience and i i attribute that to where the audience was uh uh and and it just, you know, I walked off to thunderous applause and I saw Mitzi sitting in the, her booth. And I went up to her and I said, hey, Mitzi, does it have to get any better than this? And she looked at me <laughs> and said, all right, Mark, call in for spots. And that was how I became a regular. <laughs> got my name on the wall at the comedy store. And so that that's, I, I've had this weird luck. I mean, I can, you know, it's in, I'm writing a book right now called As Luck Would Have It.
0: And, <laughs> Great name. Yeah, <laughs> and, and,
1: <laughs> Yeah, and it just, just kind of highlights that, that uh, whenever I've needed that kind of, uh, I don't know, like extra human luck that, that happens to people to, to push myself forward, uh, it's pretty much been there. So it,
0: it kinda of goes to show though sometimes you have a little bit of destiny. You know, that kind of way. Like, you because yeah. like all of those things, you're like it'd be one thing if you're like I had one bit of luck, but like in the four or five stories you told us, like they nearly all were a chain reaction. They all led to one another, you know, that kind yeah. of way, like so it's kinda of, is that weird kind of destiny feel about it though, is Like you were destined yeah. to be in show business, like
2: You've also got
3: a little bit of humility about you even when you were just talking about because again, I always go to Kanye West as just the person, <laughs> you know, my, my absolute apex yeezy. of the lack of humility. Good know, old you know? Yeezy. But, but I always kind of think, when you were saying like, yes, you were helped by the fact that the comedians that went up there before you were, were excellent and they did a real good yes, job. And well, it was a bit yeah, of a but, then... but you managed to, cap, you know, uh, capitalize on that and that's all you. But at the same time, you have recognition that, oh yeah, you, you know, Isn't... my ducks were in a row. You know, again, it's, I, and I think you need both. I think you need to know your own yeah. worth but realize sometimes that you know it worked out cut it here's
1: the equation well. here's the equation i think encapsulates what you said um i am by nature my own favorite subject <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i'm humbled and-
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> at the same time i am humbled and grateful to the universe that i'm somebody worth talking about you no, know? Yes. No, 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 no yet. that's it. That's, yet. Right, yeah. that's, that's soon. Emerge. Soon,
0: <laughs> soon. Quickly my book comes in. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, uh, we have Mark Scheffler and then we're going to go to a quick break. Uh, this is MDK presents and we'll be back in a couple of moments. welcome back from the break and um, so uh, (laughs) smooth (laughs) Um, uh, Mark so uh, before we went to the break we were talking about your career and um, uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was a show I loved uh, growing up um, watching it on TV was Sister Sister and um yeah. I know you worked on that and uh, T and Tamara something like I literally watched nearly every episode growing up and what was it like working on that show and because I know it was primarily like a a, promo- a, a production of people of color and stuff so what was it like kind of doing this? did you have to kind of change your style of humor or did you have to kind of get in a different mindset when you're writing on the show like that
1: Okay I didn't actually work on the show I did one episode of the show and uh so I I had Unfortunately, I have no stories about that because I had no interaction. I was, I would just go into the office, r- you know, break the story, write write a draft, go in for notes, write. So I, know that I, it's on my resume. That I, I have nothing to say about it. Enough, but when you, when you like,
3: is, was a case? Like, how does that happen? I, I, I'm sitting there. I'm a writer. I'm, I'm Mark Scheffler and i look great in hats and i um (laughs) great (laughs) 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 great um... by
1: the way Uh, i I had 200 some hats and i wore this one especially because i knew irish guys i figured
3: (laughs) yeah it it was fun um but i'm just sitting there how how does my day play out that i end up writing one episode of sister sister or, well, or, here or Charles talking. in Charge, or whatever. Like how, how, how does that happen? Do you get approached? Well,
1: you... <clears throat> Charles in Charge is a different story, but I'll give you the sister and sister uh, 411. I wrote that episode um, probably about... I started that job probably about a week after my first marriage ended. And the, the way that uh, episode happened was... I uh, I call your attention back to the fellow I mentioned was my producing partner in the series, Gary Hart. At that time, he was the president of of Paramount, where Sister Sister was being produced. So uh, when I found out my marriage was ending, uh, um, I I called uh, uh, three or four male friends and told them, one of whom was uh, Gary Hart. The other was a, a PGA golfer by the name of Brad Faxon, who who's a, a good friend of mine, and a, a couple of comedian friends. When I told Gary what was going on, he said to me, Gary's the sweetest man in the world, like, like you know, just a really sweet guy. And he said, how are you feeling? And I said, I can't, I, I'm, I'm, you know, fucked up. I, I don't know what I'm gonna do, you know, and I gotta get my mind on something else. So he called me back like two hours later, and he said, here, I got you a sister-sister episode. They'll call call you when they want to do the meeting. But, you know, and like that day, he issued the contracts and, you know, that's how that happened. Uh, uh, Charles in Charge is different. Charles in Charge, um, I was writing partners with uh, Lee Aronson at the time. Lee uh, went on to work with Chuck Lorre and do Two and a Half Men. So that's create Two and a Half Men. So Lee and I were writing together at the time. Um, Lee was also a stand-up. We met at the comedy store, and then uh, he went on to work on *Love Boat*, which I wrote also uh, an episode. So Lee Lee knew uh, Bill Greer, the executive producer of *Charles in Charge*. So he contacted him and and asked if we could come in and pitch some stories. Uh, we went in and pitched a half a dozen springboards. They liked one. We wrote an episode. They loved it. They, we wrote another episode after that, and one when uh, Bill and his wife Kathy, who were the show running executive producers, and Al Burton, who was the the uh, company executive producer, saw that we could write the show. They then offered us a job uh, uh, as uh, executive story editors, which you know, is a term for like writers on the show. So I ended up doing like ten episodes of Charles in Charge, and that was a very well-run show. It was a lot of fun to do. Uh, uh, at the time, you know, Scott was not the political uh, right-wing extremist. That oh, yeah, yeah, and Willie Ames was fine. It was everybody on the cast I mean, was fine. It was it was a great gig. You know, sit right being a writer on a sitcom uh, in in uh, L.A. or or any or New York. That's the best. I mean, if you, if you just want to work a few hours a day and a couple of few hours at night and make a lot of money and have a great time, that is... That is- <laughs> <laughs> you're literally, I mean, you're, you're, you're whispering <laughs> sweet, nothing's a day here. Right? Yeah. Here was our schedule. Here was our schedule on Charles and Charge. We get to the studio like at 10. First of all, it's Monday to Friday, right? Weekend's off. So we get to the studio around 10. Don't really have anything to do. Sit around play with the machines, uh, take a walk around the lot, Universal, come back, do a little work, look at this week's script, write some jokes for it, uh, go to lunch, uh, come back from lunch, have a, maybe a meeting about something with it, uh, run through it, 3.30, 4 o'clock, notes after run through, uh, you're out. You're home. Like in uh, ten minutes, it's like a six and a half hour work day, right? So, that, and and then on the, a tape day, it's even less than that because you go in and you do two versions of the show, a dress and an air, and you go home.
3: Sorry, did you break down with a dress and then, just just to a to, jaw oh. like <laughs> myself? To say,
1: okay, then. so the way the way shows were done when I when uh, um, we were doing that is. Uh, they would have a studio audience for two performances. One one would be a, a, a dress, right? And which means that right. that it's a dress rehearsal. Well, it, okay, it, fair yeah. yeah, it's a dress rehearsal, but they, they tape it because in case there's something that they can lift out of it. So um, the logic happens,
3: they don't want to miss it. Sure. Yeah,
1: they don't want to miss it. So they do a dress rehearsal, which they tape, and then they take that audience out and they bring in another audience and uh, they do what's known as the air show, which is the the show that they're going to use as the master for the uh, final version. And, you know, you, you go, it's just, it's it's a wonderful life. It's a magical life to do that. It's just as sorry, 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 I was, no, going, go I was
0: just going to say, as a writer, like uh, when you work on a sitcom like that, where the characters are often well established, but maybe before you come on and start working on it, is it harder for you to kind of craft the jokes because the characters themselves are already established and the style of humor or the style of the way they're portrayed on screen is kind of like already uh, expected by the audience, or is it easier kind of crafting a character that's kind of original to yourself or whatever?
1: So it's 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 not any more difficult it's it's just another skill set uh uh when you learn how to do that you you first of all you you know lee and i watched a half a dozen episodes of charles in charge before we uh uh pitched shows we knew that we had read a couple of scripts so we understood their format and from their format we understood how they do their stories uh which is why I, I have, you know, it didn't surprise me that when we pitched them, they were going to buy one of them because they hadn't been hadn't done those stories yet. And they were good in stories. And the Albertan, as I mentioned, the executive producer came out of Norman Lear's camp. He, he worked for Norman for many years and he had a rule. And that was don't pitch any story for Charles in charge when the if the first word isn't Charles. And that no that that gives you great guidance on. That does on, sound right.
3: <laughs> you know, if you were just saying, "Here's my idea, Charles," and then you know, it's yeah,
1: it's... Yeah. every pitch. If he, he wouldn't listen to a pitch if the first word wasn't Charles, and he, you know, it was it was wasn't. So if he said favorite. to you like, "How are you today?" you kind of go, "Charles,"
3: yeah, you're not catching <laughs> me. Okay.
1: So so, um, working on the show. W- w- us working on the show was an evolutionary step from us writing the first episode. Once we wrote the second episode, they were convinced that the first episode wasn't a fluke, that we actually could write the characters. And it's just real simple. You just, you know, you just think in the in the voices of the characters that, you know, and they and the fact that they are so clearly defined in many ways makes it easier. Because you have a template. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't have to make anything up. You just have to listen. You just have to hear their voices in your head.
3: Did you, like, when you were talking about it, you were talking about it was great, it was a lot of fun, it was an easy work day, but did it ever, and I'm just trying to think of the, the macro, of this is something that's going to hit the top. Ta- like, I wouldn't have liked to have been the comedy writer, and comedy writer would be my dream job, but I wouldn't like to have been the comedy writer that wrote um, Fonzie, Jumping the Shark, <laughs> you know, we, we a product out that's going to be that seen would, by millions of people, and if you absolutely shit the bed completely, right, it could be could be devastating.
1: You know, we that that, that 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 all of I worked on the Happy Days reunion special, so I, I've seen every episode, <laughs> and I know all those guys, and I knew Gary uh, Marshall. Uh, uh, every decision, every every large creative decision on any television show is the decision of the executive producer. So. Whatever, whatever, anything, including jumping the shark, my guess is that for whatever reason, Gary made that decision.
3: Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. So you never felt you were like, OK, I wrote this script. They buy it. They don't buy it. They're the only two things in your mind, not like how it's going to be received when it goes on air or anything like that, because there's too many people in, in the process for you to feel that all of that pressure. Is, yeah. uh,
1: was, uh, the, way, the way television scripts are generated, uh, especially in-house, meaning from the writers on the show, is that you, you come up with half a dozen springboard ideas, you know, like the things that you would read in the newspaper about what that episode is about, that's a logline or a springboard, depending on your, you know, what you want to call it so you then go pitch that to the showrunner to the executive producer, once they say yes, you start getting paid, and and. and what, pe- what the audience doesn't know is, uh, is that writers who work on TV shows get, get paid twice. They get paid as per their staff position, whether they're staff writers, story editors, executive story editors, co-producers or producers. Uh, uh, and they also get paid individually for each episode. So that's a separate fee. Uh, uh, so once they say yes to, to that, to, to an episode, that then triggers a whole process. And, and most TV deals um, are known as step deals, which means to go step by step. So the first thing you do is once, once uh, somebody says, yeah, we like that story, let's break that story and see what it looks like. You then write the narrative of the story, you know, which is a narrative outline of the story that takes it from beginning until end. With with little paragraphs that uh, uh, delineate what's happening in each scene. The main and, beats. Yeah, and exactly the beats. And then and then once you that gets approved, then you go from story to teleplay. That's why you see a lot of uh, separate uh, uh, credits that say story by and then teleplay by. But if it's the original writers who write the story and the teleplay, you're just going to see a written by credit. So I I never, you know I. I I've always been thrilled to have every job I have. So I, that how it's received, I try to do the best work I can. Uh, uh, but how it's ultimately received because of exactly what you said, that there are so many people with their fingers in that pie, that uh, I'm just a contributor to it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a significant contributor, but just a contributor.
0: Have you ever found yourself holding back on jokes that, like, you're like, because you're a standout comic and you're a, a, a comedy writer? So, does there ever be a chance you're like, oh, that's a pretty good joke. I'm going to keep it for myself?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> or,
0: yes,
2: not,
1: yeah. uh, not for that reason. Not for, No, not really. I, I'm sort of like, I'm a reflexive joke writer. So, uh, I, j- I, I write jokes every day of my life and because i see the world a certain way and the world is a setup for me and i just provide the punchlines so <laughs> I, I just no i, I'm I, I, I that. that's a t-shirt that's a t-shirt right there, there.
3: <laughs> that's, mine, I mean, that's mine um that the world is set up for me and i'm just writing the punchline like, that's up a tap, that you know. yeah, that's,
1: it's, that's the way it is you know uh, uh so no i i think I don't do that. I, I think uh, you know I'm being paid to to be me. Just do your job, uh, man, uh, I, I I need to honor that. It's but not, there has to be a clarity between writing for Nickelodeon and writing for HBO <laughs> is- Correct. But I I, I I would I'm not a guy who would write for Nickelodeon. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair enough. That's good. Tell me, tell
3: me what happened when I was reading your IMDb. I came across something, and it's just a part. It just just. Uh, tweet my curiosity, was uh, what happened with the, I, I assume, ill-fated Little Shop of Horrors pilot?
1: I was uh, doing a lot of work at NBC, and I got a call one day from uh, uh, Stu Sheslow, who was at that time the Senior Vice President of the Comedy, and uh, called me up and he said, hey, listen, Uh, Would you be interested in writing a Little Shop of Horrors pilot? And I said, sure. So I made a deal. I think it was Chuck Freeze was the company at the time. I don't know what happened to it. I wrote it and, uh, you know, uh, nothing ever happened.
0: Developmental hell.
3: There was a development. Yeah, did it just 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 fizzled out from, from your perspective? That just fizzled out there. You put you gave it all over, and
1: nothing came of it. Yeah, because even if they didn't like my script, they would have hired somebody to rewrite it. And if they were if if they were dead set on doing it, it would have gotten done. And you know, my credit would have shrunk considerably, but still, it would have it would have done, uh, gotten done. So I don't know. i Those are decisions that at the time way above my pay grade, you know, I, I, and I knew that. And I, again, I was just, I, you know, I, I was thrilled to be doing this. You know, by that time I had, I, I'd gotten myself a nice little house in Laurel Canyon. I was driving a nice car. I was out partying. I was, I hadn't yet uh, given up stand up completely. So I was doing stand up and uh, hanging out. I mean, it's just, you know, just that party, that I say party life, but it really wasn't a party. It was just a, the, the lifestyle that I led, And, and my, I, you know, me and a lot of other people. Is so, your pursuit to enjoy life, or is your pursuit yeah, more you so guys, to... You guys got to imagine that, that, you know, like, when I wasn't working on a show or a script, my life was like I wake up in the morning in my house in Laurel Canyon and uh, smoke a joint, uh, uh, go get something to eat. I wake up around noon you know, go down and uh, to Schwab's Pharmacy, was still there at the time. And I'd have uh, uh, breakfast with uh, Johnny Dark and Tom Dreesen and uh, Steve Landesberg and uh, Murray Langston, who's the unknown comic, and uh, a bunch of other people. Come back, smoke another joint, write some more jokes, take a nap, wake up about seven, uh, make something to eat, uh, uh, get dressed, go out, Hang out at the comedy store with Robin Williams and David Letterman and Jay Leno and Tom and Johnny and, and you know Michael Keaton and all these people and yeah, uh, really yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, right. just yeah. Robin Williams. Yeah.
0: It's, isn't it's called
3: Sundays, <laughs> man. We all have them. yeah, right. It was like,
1: you know, Tuesday through Saturday, right? Yeah, that's
3: me, Letterman. That's him calling me now, boy. I'm with you. I'm not gonna
1: take it. <laughs> yeah. I tell you a funny, uh, digress to a funny Letterman story. Um, There there was a, a, we had comedy groupies at the store, like these, and they're just as good looking as uh, um, music groupies. Uh, And they would just hang out and they would, you know, these girls would just fucking love comedy and love comedians. So once I got to the comedy store and, and had, you know, been on stage a few times, I realized I never had to go to a singles bar the rest of my life.
2: <laughs> you
1: know, this, is all, this is all I needed, right? Mm-hmm. So, you you know how like singers are on stage, and if there are uh, women that they're, that they, you know, uh, want to uh, uh, mess around with, they'll see them in the audience and they'll start crooning them, they'll singing their, their <laughs> song, right? And they're, you know, and then the whole audience blacks out and there's just a spotlight on the girl. So,
3: uh, uh, imagine you take a Courtney uh, Cox and Bruce Springsteen, you know, or yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. So comedians do the same thing. Only they do the setup to the audience and the punchline to the girl. Ooh. So, yeah. I like that. Yeah. So, uh, um, what happened was I was in there one night on stage, and there was a girl in the audience. There was a girl in the audience, and uh, um, I was doing that. You know, it was I was I was doing that thing, and afterwards, as I suspected, she. Uh, uh, got to me right after. You know, it was one of those things where you don't have to worry about separating the girl from her friends. That she separated herself
3: so, <laughs> has wandered off from the pack. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so um, um, we end up back in my house, uh, which is uh, great because I had my house was like a minute and a half uh, from the store. And uh, after you, you know what? She looks at me and she says, uh, "You know." I think I should tell you that I'm seeing another comedian. And I said, okay, you know, first time we're together, no one's making plans here, you know, have, live your life. So she said, well, don't you want to know who it is? And I said, no, not really. Yeah. Uh, doesn't really Wait, interest you me.
0: met her an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, right, yeah. right. She said, well, I'm going to tell you anyway, it's David Letterman. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And she said, well, you don't have anything to say to that. I said, well, yes, I do. And she said, well, what do you have to say? And I told her, I said, I admire your range. (laughs) 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 And to to be perfectly truthful, I never said anything to David, and I have no proof that she was telling me the truth. (laughs) I'm only telling you the story that happened. You know?
3: I just wonder if it's the comedian version of was like, is he funnier than me? <laughs> it's not like the size of the how you
1: use it. <laughs> it's funny you mention that. I, among the guys that I hung out with on a, on a regular basis there, which would include David and Leno and Robin and, and uh, uh, Tom and, and Johnny Dargan, we didn't really have, um, you know, we weren't competitive with each other. We were all so different.
3: Yeah, you know. I think that's the thing as well. It wasn't that you were trying to go for an exact same demographic of people. It's not like when you write comedy show and you're trying to compete with a network for a time slot for a demographic. It's not like that because maybe no. people laugh is too big a concept. Nobody owns that.
1: Like we 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 weren't in competition. There was no we because we used to play softball together and 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 hang out and we, there was this this. I hate to use that that overused word camaraderie but that's about that's about really what it was those of us those of us who were part of the uh original class of 77 right the the guys who were there before the strike and then after the strike uh in 79 we we uh we were a a fairly tight-knit group Uh, And none of us were, we we would support each other. You know, I remember we we would go, a bunch of us, many nights would go to the, there was a hotel next to the comedy store then was the Hyatt House. And we would go there after the store closed and go over each other's acts and sit there and help and say, no, you could do it better this way, do it better that way. Uh, uh, So there wasn't, there wasn't that thing. Which is, I, and I never, like, you know, what am I, I mean, mention this to David, right? If you can imagine that scene. hey, David, are you fucking this girl named Nancy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's probably like, yeah, yeah Fordham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. You know, I never said anything. And again, I have no actual proof that she was telling the truth. But I suspect she might have been. Yeah. Also, <laughs> it
3: just sounded like a really matter to you. Because I just sounded like you were competitive and not any, Aspect
0: of it. it fasted, yeah. I mean,
3: I suppose if I, if I was to do something like that, I'd be thinking, I hope people laugh. And yeah. that's yeah. it. Like everything else will fall in place if that works. It's that's not really, it's, it's not like it's trying good. to build a business empire where you have to, like, you know, steps and plans and five year your... but If you make people laugh, I'd imagine that. it'll play... If you were saying that you went up and you had a killer set and then you were able to approach her and go, Well, did I get the job? You know, like, is that enough? And she's going, Call in for a slot. You made people laugh. Uh, the chips fall
1: where they make, so. That's it. See, see success and everything that that brings and means is merely a byproduct of making people laugh. You know, in comedy, that's it. If, if you can make people laugh consistently, on cue, and you're you know, and you're good at it, and uh, uh, you know that things just happen. It's just you know, if you 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 do that in the right place, it's going to happen.
0: Where's the hardest venue that you've done a set at? where you just done a set and it just, it just didn't hit right or something, you know? Uh, <laughs> oh.
2: He's asking you where you bombed. bummed. That's
3: just yeah,
1: right. yeah. I, I gratefully have not had many of those, but hmm. I've had sets where, um, where it was, it was a strange scenario. Like I opened, I opened for uh, a band called Tower of Power once uh, <laughs> uh, at the Roxy in LA and,
3: Power uh, of power course. is an interesting thing. If I, I from the Frank Zappa song Bobby Brown, I've heard. Yeah. Uh, I can take about yeah. an hour on the Tower to power as long well as I get a little golden shower. Um, so so uh,
1: so um, I apparently I didn't realize this uh, until Argus Hamilton, a comedian friend of mine uh, from the store, told me that I was the first one of our group. Uh, to break out and get an opening spot for uh, a rock band and it was happened to be Tower of Power so uh, um, a bunch of my friends came to that show uh, Argus was there and Mark Summers and some other guys that, that we knew and they, they wanted to watch so I did a bit in my act in like the first third of my act where I did a, an impression of a pigeon eating a, a saltine cracker and there, they didn't put a stool on the stage for me so I had to take my glasses off and put them down so I could do the bit properly. And then after I did it, I couldn't find my glasses (laughs) because of the lights. So I was trying to do my material in a, you know, opening for a rock group and nobody really wanted to listen to me. They wanted the band and it didn't matter what I was saying. The crowd was noisy. And according to what my friends told me, uh, about 10 times I came this close to stepping on my
2: glasses. Uh, So
1: that, that that was not an emotionally satisfying event for
2: me.
3: Yeah, because one thing, yeah, one thing you don't want to be is ignored.
2: No, yeah.
3: uh, That's a strange it. thing I've heard that Bill Hicks open for Tool and stuff like that, and never that. I remember thinking, is that a thing? Because it's not really a thing here I in warm Ireland. Warm up
0: the crowd. Yeah, I know. Warm up the crowd. Usually, oh, it's, it's like. like you know,
3: like a, a lesser known rock band open for a bigger rock band. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's rock and rock or, uh, or ra- you know, it could be a rock, it could be rap, it could be, you know, um, RB a Lesser opening you know, up for bigger, but inside the same genre. Then I realized that in the States, probably in a lot of places that, yeah, um, people making the crowd laugh, apparently can gear them up for like metal, rock and roll.
1: they that used to be a big thing is to have comedians open for rock bands. That's you know, yeah, like my my friend, uh, uh, the late Glenn Super, uh, Mr. Bullhorn, he opened for the Beach Boys for, <laughs> uh, and he opened for George Carlin for quite a long time. Oh. So, you I'm know, uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it was a thing. I don't know if it's a thing anymore, but uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be somebody opening for a rock band right now. <laughs> I, I, I had rock. my taste of it. If, if I was
3: if I was a cruel god and I was able to take away aspects of your career, your writing, uh, your 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 I suppose you know the Last House on the Left, which kind of got you started. Um, what would be the one thing that you would fight for? It would be the stand up. Is that the thing that just when you look back on you, which one of those things brought you most joy? Ultimately, would be a very simple way of asking the question.
1: I think I think what ha- uh, has brought me the most joy is recognizing that I have a sense of humor like a like a marketable commercial sense of humor and that i have the ability to make lots of people laugh at will and mm-hmm. and that to me <laughs> that. It is, it's that, that is that is the thing that i cherish most uh about myself uh because that's what drives everything else that's you fantastic. know um i
3: know that you're for 72 years young is there any
2: sign you
1: slow down or are you just going to be- No, I told you, I, I'm a reflexive joke writer. I write jokes every day of my life. I don't I don't like try to write jokes. I just see them and then write down what I see. And and uh, uh, usually they're funny. Um, I, I'm back to doing stand-up. I do, uh, but- So there was a hiatus I take from the way you put that. It, yeah, there was a big hiatus, uh, 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 like 35 years. And, and yeah,
3: the, yeah the small is a sub- bit yeah, <laughs> yeah. We give, Are we going to give it a <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, so for me, stand up. It, I told you guys that I hadn't. I, I said earlier in this interview that I told you a story and I said I hadn't yet made the decision about writing versus stand up. At some point, I realized that I didn't want to be on the road. I, n- I don't really like that life. I don't. You know, mm-hmm. I, I like. Did you story. age a
3: bit, or did you never like it?
1: I never liked it. <laughs> Sure. I, I never liked it I don't like car, long car rides I don't like uh to travel uh, other than for pleasure and, or for a really lot amount of money uh um and you know um I just didn't want to do that and I was getting a lot of writing jobs so I and I wanted to be a father I wanted to have children I wanted a stable family life so at some point I made the decision I, I got some couple of writing jobs in a row and I wasn't I had to be in studios and this I was starting to get to the point where I really had to work where I had to learn and you know it was it was uh, not goofing off anymore it was it was real work so I made the decision that I had to stop doing stand-up and and throughout the years whenever I saw my friends you know doing their stand-up uh, or performing I would I wouldn't say it was regret, but it was it was a pain it was it was a a, like a longing a longing so Mm -hmm. for me stand up was the girl who got away right the girl Mm -hmm. who i said no i I can't be with you and my my choice i i take full responsibility for it right i don't i did it and i and i knew and i did it with open eyes and everything else but still you know so in in 2015 i was in a really bad accident i got hit by a car Uh, walking home from a grocery store to to my place in L.A. And uh, I was was hurt really badly. I had broken bones everywhere. And uh, I was on a lot of pain meds. And the interesting thing that happened uh, was that every time I'd get my medicine, my pain medication, uh, my mind would go back to 1977 when I was at the comedy store, and I would just kind of relive those days of doing stand-up, and and that was palliative for me. That took away the pain. That 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 helped me more than the medicine. The medicine was just helped me get to that place inside my head, but the the memories are what. Kind of like numbed me to the to the pain that I was having. So when I got better and I got a little more ambulatory, I started hanging out at the comedy store thinking that, yeah, maybe I'll go back and do stand-up. So I watched and I listened to the audiences and I listened to the comedians and I came to the realization that uh, no one was going to give a shit. No one was, you know, so what? I had a great career. They're new people. Nobody fucking cares. Uh, get real. So I put it bed right I said just you know worry about some writing I'm writing the book I'm doing some things whatever working on that so I don't know must have been like two years later year later uh, I was in my shower and I just had one of those self-evaluation moments man I was taking a shower and I was just looking at myself and I said ah fuck man it was just I really got down on myself for giving up stand-up because it's. I can't express to you guys the thrill that that there is when you're on stage and you've got a microphone in your hand and you're just talking and everybody's reacting. It's like yeah, you have yeah. you know, you, they're in your tractor beam and and you know if you if you're really good they're not going to get out of it until you let go. So I got out and I said to myself, my beard was. I just shaved my beard. My beard was like down to here and. Uh, um, I, I said, you're just like this skinny old fucking used up Jewish guy no one <laughs> shit, you, know, you piece of shit. And I got, and I looked out at myself in the mirror and just really was down on myself. And, yeah. and uh, all, of a, all of a sudden, again, that fucking luck that I have, I, I, I looked at my image and I had a twinkle in my eye. And I saw it. And then I had a thought and I looked at myself and I said... Don't come! Don't don't go away! I'll be right back. So mm-hmm. I ran, I ran into my uh, uh, bedroom and into my closet, and I put on a, a black suit with a white shirt and a black tie. And I have a hat collection that I, I mentioned. And I, I put on a big fedora, and I walked in to my bathroom, wiped the fog off the mirror, and looked at myself, and I said, "Now." <I'm-> <that's> <laughs> I go on stage, as you see, as El Yid, a former kosher chef. <laughs> and I created a character in that instant that was uh, a combination of my maternal grandfather and uh, the rabbi of the synagogue that, that we belong to. So uh, I, I said afterwards, uh, maybe this is real, maybe it isn't. So I, I ended up writing for six months, uh, this character. I wrote joke after joke after hunk after hunk after hunk. And at the end of six months, I was convinced that I wasn't like blowing smoke on my own ass. Uh, I called up a young kid who I knew who ran an open mic and I said, hey, I need 15 minutes. I'm gonna show up as a character. He said, hey, just come on, man, I'd love to have you. So I went to this guy's place and I went on stage I did 15 minutes and it fucking worked. And mm-hmm. the audience did what I thought it would do the moment I walked on stage. They shut up and started to listen.
0: Yeah.
1: That image alone make, makes people quiet, it makes people listen. So from 2017 until the pandemic, uh, uh, whenever I was in LA, because my wife is a Colombian woman, and prior to uh, uh, Going prior to the pandemic, we were spending three or four or five months a year with her family in Colombia. So, whenever I was back in LA, I, I kept my beard real long
2: mm. and
1: uh, uh, I would do stand up. And it was really working. I had done some shows, I did a show in New York. And then the pandemic happened and everything got stopped. Uh, but I wrote, I kept writing. And then, on October 9th of this year, just a little over a month ago, uh, I did my first show since. I did 25, 26 minutes, and I got twenty five applause breaks. Oh, and oh, wow. yeah, I know. Does it play on your faith? It, it sounds like
3: it's the culture shot, the long, the long beard, and stuff like that. You know, Self depreciative humor. It sounds like perhaps?
1: Well, it's what it, it isn't really because I I am personally not very observant, right? Like I'm I'm sort of an atheist. Yeah. Uh, same, right, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. Ball, bodies, well, like, yeah. We're all Catholic bodies, like, yeah, uh, atheists as well. Yeah,
3: atheists.
1: Yeah. So, 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 um, what I try to do is write material that's um, culturally evocative, but nothing really religious. I okay. don't. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get into the religious aspects of anything. Yeah, uh, not, not the base yeah. side of it,
3: just the the cultural perspective of it.
2: The...
1: Yeah, and then I blend, you know, I blend. M- aspects of my life uh filtered through that prism right as if it was part of his life and uh yeah it's it continues to work i just shaved because i got tired of waking up with hair in my mouth okay. i go to sleep and i wake up sucking on a carpet so uh... <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. but um, hey mark so uh, can i ask you one uh, question before i let you out here is um uh, you started in um, horror and uh, you've gone on and your career has expanded into comedy throughout the years. And at the moment, we've seen a kind of a, a resurgence or a surgence of uh, uh, comedy actors or people that have come from a comedy background going into horror, like Chris Rock, John Kaczynski, uh, Jordan Peele. And like, do you think like that you'd ever maybe Take a look at the horror genre again. Maybe think about writing a movie or writing for a TV series, or you know, kind of walking on that the dark side, if you will, one more time.
1: Oh, sure. You know, if if the but not right now. uh, Knock on wood. uh, I wouldn't. I don't have to do anything for the money. So so past projects. Yeah, it would be. But I'm I'm more focused on trying to get my my series uh, those seven years made uh, because that's a story I really want to tell.
0: And, you, and I, would you do that as like a sitcom style?
1: No, I would do it as a, like a single camera dramedy. I mean, it's funny, but it's more like a single camera dramedy.
0: Something like *Curb Your Enthusiasm* or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Cool. Is it no? Just disappeared.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Obviously, it's something I said.
0: Uh, <laughs> he's got baby bladder. He's he's, he's uh, the worst. He's the worst. <laughs> But um yeah so uh, no you just disappeared before we're going to end the show so like <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: Cold baby bladder
1: it's a very real issue oh, the only thing missing was him yelling check please <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um so yeah Mark so so you think like the only way you'd ever really step back in the horror genre if it was something that really you felt passionate about and otherwise you yeah. kind of sti- see yourself kind of sticking in the more comedy realm?
1: would as an actor. Do pretty much anything, right? A- as a writer or or uh, uh, a producer, I would have to be very passionate. about it. But as an actor, you know, uh, I- I'd love to do that again. So it wouldn't and
0: does that, that come that down happens? to like a time commitment thing, like you know, because like as an actor, it's a few weeks shoot, or if you're writing something, it could be a nine, ten month right? You come in, you produce, and then you have to go through development, all these things. Like,
1: right? It's like raising a child. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you Something you're not in a rush to do. <laughs> no, I've, already I've already done that three times, and I have no desire. love my children, but no desire yeah, to do that. It's
0: exhausting. I have a daughter. It's exhausting. <laughs> well, I have a donation. We're all in the same boat. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Mark, it was awesome having you. But um, do you want to tell the folks uh, where they can find you and all about your projects coming up and all that jazz?
1: Yes, uh, Facebook uh, as me, and also El Yid has a face. My character has a Facebook page. Also That's on El uh, yeah,
3: two yeah, separate two, words. Two
1: words. Yeah. Two separate words. That's correct. Thank you for uh, uh, pointing that out. Just for uh, uh, so Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, and uh, I'm on Instagram and and uh, Twitter, all those places. I just hired a social media guy, so I'm gonna. Uh, <laughs> beyond we a sure got <laughs> media, right? yeah, I, i've been TV, saying yeah. this we're building we're building <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's okay you'll get there you guys are pretty good you'll get there <laughs>
0: oh thank you yeah, thanks well i'm pretty good and you're yeah 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 you're amazing you're amazingly so yeah, so. okay. inconsistent <laughs> <but> <laughs> the only
1: is, having been to ireland i can i can tell you i'm watching you guys only in Ireland can you be a guest on a podcast and just sit here and watch those two guys interview each other.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's it.
1: Jeff. We just brought you here. To, like,
0: yeah, uh, He's the, the buffer so we don't
1: beat each other. Each other. <laughs> that's it, that's it, I, I'm happy to be the point of this isosceles triangle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't speak Greek, but whatever. We all have beards and none of us are women. So we're
0: <laughs> the- yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, so awesome, Mark. Um, so love uh, you having you so um we're going to let you out here right and uh Hi, i'm your host vincent green and, your host, John and uh we've got car mack in the back and this is mdk presents mark sheffler thanks so much for having uh for coming on mark yeah, I mean, and it was awesome the talking to you
3: yeah, yeah we, we, we definitely
0: have to get you to come back sometime because i'm sure you have a shit ton more stories for us to hear like yeah. yeah if you
3: would if you'd be open to talk to us again mark we would absolutely love yeah, yeah,
0: sure. it awesome awesome yeah. thank you so, so much thank you for coming you
3: your morning
0: with us uh, thank you so much and uh We'll chat you soon and the episode will be out in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care, guys. See you later, Mark. Thanks, Mark.